Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Michael Neese, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Lafayette College, writing in theconversation.com, says that self-driving cars are expected to revolutionize the automobile industry. Rapid advances have led to working prototypes faster than most people expected. Anticipated benefits of this emerging technology include safer, faster, and more eco-friendly transportation. But, says Neese, we shouldn't ignore the human element of automated driving. Self-driving cars will still need people. And he says we can turn to aviation for perhaps a pattern for the future. Today, we're going to look into the future of cars and driving. We'll talk about automation and self-driving cars and advances in electric cars. I think we're fascinated with that technology as well. Our guests will include Michael Neese and Edwin Stafford, Professor of Marketing in the USU Huntsman School of Business. So we bring in now Michael Neese, Assistant Professor of Psychology at Lafayette College. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Lafayette College is in Pennsylvania. It is. It's in eastern Pennsylvania, uh, just right on the border uh, with New Jersey. And so you, uh, you, you study, or at least you're writing here in this article about the field of human factors, how people interact with machines. Yes, my, my background's in human factors and engineering psychology, and that is a, it's a design science field. Uh, what we seek to do is we, we try to apply knowledge from people, or about people, from basic psychological research. So there's a good base of knowledge in psychology about how people perceive, how they think about things, how they act, constructs that we think about often like memory and attention. Uh, and we can take what we know about all of those things from psychology and apply those to the design of the systems and the technology with which people interact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of times we don't connect up psychology with this field, but it is fascinating. And, and uh, now that I'm talking to you, I'm remembering we've talked a few times on this program with uh, David Strayer, professor at the uh, University of Utah, psychologist, and he's gotten into the field of distracted driving, so he's a leader in the, that field. Uh, so we want to talk about yeah. driverless uh, vehicles. We also want to talk about uh, electric vehicles, and we bring in Edwin Stafford, professor of marketing in the USU Huntsman School of Business. Welcome back to the program. Thank, thank you very much, Tom. And uh, so you're, you do, do work in the field of green, green marketing? Absolutely. Uh, green marketing, diffusion of uh, renewable energy and clean technology. I worked on the Spanish Fork Wind Project uh, several years ago. Um, got two documentaries about wind power. And so I've been learning and studying um, what does it take to actually be an entrepreneur in green technology and to diffuse it and market it into the, mm-hmm. into the marketplace. We'll mention the names of those films, very fine films, Wind Uprising and Scaling Wind. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, So let me begin uh, with Michael Neese. Um, I I think we're fascinated by driverless vehicles. We kind of wonder, and the picture, we just borrowed the picture from the the conversation.com, the article. Um, there's no steering wheel in this vehicle that we picture on our website. <laughs> four, four seats, and it's sort of like the Star Trek uh, vehicle. Um, so uh, tell us, Michael Neese, what, um, I guess, what, tell us the hype, first of all. What, what, what are we, what, what is the hype? What are we thinking it might uh, lead to? Well, self-driving cars, they certainly have taken a very, very strong place in the public consciousness. Um, and I think it's been sort of interesting to watch that unfold. I'm not sure if it's the sort of, uh, other sort of undelivered promises of personal transportation and modernity, right? We haven't gotten our jet packs yet. We haven't gotten our hoverboards that showed up and back to the future. So this idea that has come about uh, and really has hit the kind of mainstream press a lot in the last couple of years about how uh, maybe very soon, sooner than any of us expected, our cars will be driving us around uh, and we'll be able to kick back and just watch movies or take a nap uh, as we get from point A to point B. Uh, it, it's really been interesting to watch uh, 
how strongly people have sort of grasped onto that concept uh, pretty quickly. And one of the things that I think is concerning about that is the expectations that it establishes. Um, that may be possible that at some point in, in I think, the, the distant future, we will, in fact, be taking naps as our car mm-hmm. drives us from point A to point B. <laughs> but yeah. I think that's, that's still a long ways off, and mm-hmm. we have a number of hurdles to overcome before we get to that point. Let me just read a, a paragraph from your article in theconversation.com. Mercedes-Benz promotional materials show self-driving vehicles with rear-facing front seats. The hype on self-driving cars implies the driver will be unneeded, free to ignore the road. Public's also begun to embrace this notion. Studies show that people want to engage in activities such as reading, watching movies, or napping, as you mentioned, in self-driving cars. Also, that automation encourages these distractions. And (laughs) a study in France, you say, even indicated that riding while intoxicated was a perceived benefit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> a little scary. people, um, th- th- there really is this sort of notion that's, that's starting to take hold uh, with the public that the self-driving car is going to, to be fully automated, uh, not just partially automated where some of the tasks that used to be accomplished by the driver are now accomplished by, by the technology, but fully automated to the point where the human will have, uh, you know, absolutely no role to play in the driving task. And, and I think that's, that's, again, a long way off if that ever materializes. Uh, and the reason I say that is we can look to other examples. Uh, you know, this won't be the first. It may be perhaps the most interesting example and the most widespread example of, of automation uh, that we've seen introduced with technology, but it's certainly not the first. You know, automation, uh, and, and by automation and human factors, what we're talking about is when we take something that used to be accomplished by, by the system, by the machine, uh, by, a, by a computer um, and, or, or rather, we take something that used to be accomplished by the human and hand it off to the computer. And so now something that the person used to do in this broader system is accomplished by the machine. Uh, in this case, with self-driving cars, with the machine, we're talking about a complex array of sensors and computers that you know, take over the, the manual task of steering the car, accelerating, braking, and so on. Uh, if we look to other examples of where automation has been implemented, you know, for example, in manufacturing systems or in aviation uh, what we tend to see happen is, is not that, you know, the, the kind of colloquial idea is that, well, once, once the robot's doing things, the human has nothing to do. Uh, you're free to take a nap. You're free to watch a movie. And what we tend to see is that it's not that the human no longer has any workload or, or any job to do in the system. It's that the human's job is now different once the automation uh, has taken place. And, and the job tends to shift from those manual operations to monitoring the automation. And what you're watching for there. Uh, is, is for when the automation fails. We know that the automation is not going to be perfectly reliable in any circumstance. You know, known uh, potential problems with the types of sensors that are being used in self-driving cars as they're being prototyped are you know, potentially problems with uh, the sensors during weather, bad weather, you know, rain, snow, things like that. Uh, there are other situations certainly where the automation might fail. And so when the automation fails, uh, the best option for you know, intervening and making sure that the car stays on the road uh, and operates the way it's supposed to is probably going to be for the human driver to resume uh, manual control of the vehicle. As you write in the article, um, if the driver is reduced, if you could put it that way, uh, to monitoring the technology, well, that's really boring. That's <laughs> it, it is. You know, you know uh, are you going to buy a self-driving car if um, instead of, for example, having your business meeting or watching your film or taking your nap, if instead the manufacturer is going to say, look, um, we're pretty confident we can get you there safer and with better fuel economy and, and faster, 
but, but you're not going to drive the car at all. You're not going to have your hands on the steering wheel. You're going to be watching uh, or perhaps listening uh, to what your car is doing, uh, and, and you're going to have to do that the entire ride in case we need you. Uh, but 99% of the time, we're not going to need you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as far as the model of acceptance goes, if people would be willing to accept that. I think that's an open question. And, and I think that it's pretty likely that at least in the initial iterations of self-driving cars, that there's going to be some expectation that the human will need to do some version of that, some version of that boring monitoring task. Mm. And then there are problems, of course. We'll get into talking as we go along the hour, uh, draw an analogy to the airline industry, and so we'll do that. Uh, let me turn to Edwin Stafford, um, putting on your marketing hat for self-driving cars. Yes, you know. And, what, uh, what, uh, what should the marketing be? Well, absolutely. One of the things that we look at in uh, any new technology is the diffusion of innovation. So you want to look at who are going to be the innovators, who are the first people who are likely to adopt this product. And uh, I see a couple of barriers here. First, uh, you know, he was talking about intoxicated drivers as being, uh, or intoxicated people, I should say, uh, as uh, being able to benefit from this technology. Um, maybe older people who can't drive anymore, uh, they may be able to benefit from this technology in the sense that, um, I mean, the perception of the public is, is that, you know, you don't have to worry about driving um, that the challenge is, is that are those individuals likely to be the f- innovators? In other words, are they going to take the risk? And uh, what we find is older people tend to be later adopters of any technology. It's um, kind of like uh, cell phones. You know, some of the older people didn't adopt them as quickly as younger people or wealthier people. And so uh, whenever we look at a new technology, we need to figure out Who's going to see the relative benefit, and can I design the product and the technology to appeal to that set of individuals? Um, I'm thinking about the Tesla. Uh, I know Tesla is planning to have self-driving, but from the Tesla owners I know, they love to drive. I mean, they want to be in control because the car is fast, it's fun, it's sexy, and to leave the driving experience to a computer, that's not why you buy a Tesla. Mm-hmm. I could see uh, for me just, just putting myself in the non-driver seat. I guess in this this case, uh, the cool factor would be good. I wouldn't want to shell out the money, but if uh, you know if, if Google wanted to give me a car, um, I'd be driving that thing or sitting in that thing a lot just so that my neighbors could see. Oh yeah, Tom's got the he's got the cool car. Sure, yeah. Um, but you know, from what I understand, and, and maybe Michael can confirm this, but my understanding is is that the um, you know self-driving cars they den- they tend to drive slower uh, because they're being more careful, and you know, the computer is making these calculations and trying to make sure that everything is safe. And so, um, as as I know, Tesla drivers they want to go fast, uh, and and so to experience that, you have to be in the driver's seat to do mm-hmm. that. Now, Michael Neese, uh, there are moral questions, and this, this is often used in, uh, you know, over in the philosophy department as well. But uh, so the computer uh, has to be able to take over uh, such decisions as do I run over the squirrel or do I come dangerously close to the, uh, you know, to the drop off in the road? There are Those sorts of things. Certainly deep moral questions that, um, and it, it really, I think, will have a, a large impact on how this acceptance factor uh, plays out, how uh, the extent to which people actually, uh, from, a, from a consumer uh, perspective, are uh, willing to embrace this technology and, and buy self-driving cars. Uh, I, I think it will be fascinating, uh, uh, certainly tragic, but just from an, an observer's perspective, uh, fascinating to see what happens when the inevitable first accident that is attributable to the automation in a self-driving car 
uh, plays out. How will people perceive that? Um, uh, certainly, the moral dilemma uh, is sort of a, I think philosophers call it the trolley problem. But, you know, you may very well have a, a, a decision to make about uh, an accident's going to happen, and uh, one of two people or one of two other vehicles is going to be struck by the self-driving car. Uh, and presumably, somewhere in that uh, technology, there will be an algorithm that will decide, you know, is it A or, or is it B? Uh, when we look at the way accidents happen with human drivers, I think we tend to attribute that decision to the randomness and sort of chance of the world. Uh, and in this case, we might be able to point to, you know, if uh, this line of code had been different, uh, perhaps the accident would have unfolded in a different way. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly how the public perception of that, uh, how much that will be a, a problem or, or not, but it certainly will be interesting to see. Well, I guess on the plus side, I could see that uh, a you know, computer taking over my driving responsibilities could, could cut back on distracted driving problems. Uh, potentially. Uh, the distraction may, may come about in, in a different sort of version if, if sort of as I suspect, you, you are indeed tasked with monitoring uh, the automation. Mm -hmm. So it would, it would look different. And, and I do think, you know, uh, I'm not a naysayer on this technology. Uh, from a personal perspective, it, it cannot get here soon enough because we know that there are so many ways that people make uh, bad decisions and, and make lots of mistakes and have lots of accidents, and we, we have a lot of traffic fatalities, right, uh, from, from what some people describe as human errors. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, the distractions, they may play out a little bit differently in a self-driving car in that you may be able, you know, to engage to some extent in reading that book, but it's not clear how we're going to design automation uh, to allow you to do that if, in fact, you do have to also be prepared to take over for that automation in the event that it makes a mistake or is, becomes confused uh, or has a failure of reliability. Hmm. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to hear about uh, this fascinating portion in your, in your article about a cross-country test trip that uh, engineers did with a, with a driverless vehicle. Um, and they, they, the accident rate was, was down to, uh, or, or the success rate was 99%. As you point out in the, the article, that's great, but uh, we need it to be higher than that if you're going to multiply this by millions of driverless vehicles on the road. We'll hear about that and more, and hopefully your call. We're talking about driverless vehicles and electric vehicles. And the future of cars and driving on the program we have with us, Edwin Stafford from USU and Michael Neese from Lafayette College. More following the break. Did you know that looking at scenes from nature can make you feel less impulsive? Researchers at USU found that people who viewed natural scenes made better decisions. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Most of the seafood Americans consume comes from another country. What we've done is we've lost our natural productive estuaries and we've traded them for foreign estuaries. I'm David Gura, the surprisingly global seafood business, next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us Tuesday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I have with me in studio Edwin Stafford, professor of marketing at the USU Huntsman School of Business. Uh, he works in the field of green marketing. He's uh, studied and made films on uh, wind power, and he's also up on electric vehicles. So we'll uh, talk about that as we go along here. We're talking with Michael Neese as well, assistant professor of psychology at Lafayette College, and uh, he's in the uh, field of human factors, how people interact with machines. And he wrote recently in theconversation.com about driverless vehicles. His bottom line is that uh, automated uh, cars will still need people. And we're talking about that. We're opening the phone lines here, and we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, would you be an early adopter of a driverless vehicle? Or uh, maybe you have a Tesla you'd like to tell us about. 1-800-826-1495 or, or a Leaf or a Volt. 1-800-826-1495. Or upraxis at gmail.com is our email. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at Utah Public Radio. So, Michael Neese, I made reference to this before the break. You write in your article about a cross-country trip taken by a driverless vehicle. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, there was a a cross-country trip. I believe it was completed by a Delphi engineering team. Uh, It got a lot of press uh, earlier this spring. pretty impressive feat. You know, the car drove uh, in a self-driving mode uh, from, you know, one side of the country to the other. And uh, apparently the, the automated programs were in control of the vehicle, uh, they estimated about 99% of the time. Uh, there were just a few instances where uh, the engineers had to uh, intervene uh, in the name of safety. And, and I, to be completely uh, fair, uh, it wasn't necessarily that the automated programs were about to have an accident. It's that they intervened just to be on the safe side. Uh, instances mentioned in the reports that showed up in the press were, uh, for example, when a vehicle was pulled off uh, to the side of the road uh, in a place where you wouldn't normally anticipate another car uh, you know, sort of being parked. And so that received a lot of attention uh, for its success you know, as a, an indicator of how far self-driving vehicles have come. Uh, one of the questions I raise in my article, though, is is what about that 1% and, and what are we going to, to do about it? What are, how are we going to design this technology uh, so that when that 1% uh, event happens, when that infrequent but critical and important event happens that, you know, for which the driver may need to intervene and take control of the car back from these automated programs, uh, how are we going to design that so that it, it's successful? So that it works. Given that, we know that people are going to want to engage in reading, uh, texting, emailing, other sorts of activities, and probably uh, it's going to be hard to anticipate these sort of infrequent events. Uh, you're not going to have a lot of time for the driver to resume control of the vehicle. And the early data are showing that people are actually really pretty bad at getting back into that groove of driving after they've uh, been, you know accomplishing those secondary tasks while the car was driving itself. So are we going to be more like airline pilots then? You draw an analogy to the airline industry. And I think some parts of that analogy are fair. Uh, and in other ways, the people would argue that, that driving is much different from flying a plane. But I think it's a certainly a good place to look and a fruitful place to sort of examine to try to predict what, what the driving task might look like as it becomes more and more automated. What we tend to see with with planes, oftentimes when planes crash, we can read about many, many high-profile instances in recent years of failures of uh, the interaction between the humans and the automation. 
And from a human factors perspective, um, that's the sort of thing where, you know, you might want to call that a human error and say, well, the person made a mistake. And, and that's certainly true in that the person probably could have done something different uh, in that situation and the outcome would have been different. But we tend to look at human errors in the human factors literature as, as a, a system design error. We tend to ask questions like, well, certainly, yes, the human did something uh, that, that, that led to this event, but could we have designed this, this system differently such that the human never made that mistake in the first place? Could we have somehow prevented it by better design that took into account the sort of capabilities and limitations of people? And, uh, you know, I think that sort of approach would be really uh, helpful as we start to consider how self-driving cars are going to be deployed. And my concern is that uh, the approach may instead be very technology-centric rather than seeing automation and self-driving cars as kind of a dance and a collaboration between the human and the technology that we're trending toward those uh, scenarios that you pointed out where we're going to take the steering wheel out of the car altogether uh, and just completely make it an engineering project and a technology project. Uh, I think when we start to actually deploy that sort of system with people and the sorts of things that will happen on a large scale as this technology becomes ubiquitous, uh, I think that that could be a, a potential route to, to disaster that would end up being self-defeating for the purpose of you know, self-driving cars if we don't consider the role that people are going to play in this system. I wonder, um, I'm going to read a, a quote here from Mary Barra, GM uh, CEO. Uh, but where I'm going here is I wonder if this is inevitable. You know, we, we're, technology is increasingly becoming available, but there are often barriers to that in, in terms of people's acceptance. So I'm going to ask you if you think that driverless cars are inevitable down the road. Here's what she says. Um, she says, uh, people talk about autonomous. She says, I like to call it intelligent driving systems. Autonomous is scary. Intelligence is liberating. <laughs> And that sort of gets into the field of marketing and how we frame things. But, but so uh, I wonder if, if, if uh, what you think do you, is, uh, you know, where will we all have driverless cars in, say, you know, X number of years? I think that there's a, a very high likelihood that we will have cars that have at least some degree of partial automation. Um, we've already seen adaptive cruise control and collision avoidance systems that start to partially automate driving tasks. You know, um, if if, for example, you're uh, uh, in the situation where there's an imminent collision, the, the system will go ahead and start to apply the brake for you, uh, even if you don't see that collision about to happen. Uh, I think the full automation of vehicles is, um, is perhaps uh, going to be a bit further down the road than is, than is currently being predicted. You know, you see some, I think, wildly optimistic projections that, you know, by 2025, all cars will be fully automated. Uh, and, and, and then people have already started to dissect, well, the consequences of that, uh, you know, the economic windfall of all the extra time gained to, for example, have business meetings in cars and things like that, uh, you know, potential consequences that, that are not anticipated. Uh, so things like, well, what's going to happen with organ donors? If we don't have car accident victims to donate organs, where will... Uh, all the people who need organ transplants get organs from. I, I think that sort of thinking about you know self-driving cars and the idea that automation, full automation, taking a nap in your car, that sort of thing, is imminent. Uh, I, I'm less uh, I'm less optimistic that that's going to happen 
in in the immediate future. I think you know in the next five to ten years we'll see uh, partially automated systems, you know, adaptive cr- cruise control, collision avoidance become uh, more and more ubiquitous. Uh, I think the fully automated driving is is a ways off and has a number of barriers to overcome before it can be implemented. If you just joined us, we're talking about the future of driving, future of cars. Uh, very cool to, to see this technology, but uh, uh, some dilemmas as well. And uh, we want to know what you think. Uh, you can join us at 1-800-826-1495. Would, uh, would you jump in a driverless car at this point? Uh, you'd probably have to drive to Silicon Valley at this point to, to do that, but that'd be pretty cool. Um, uh, would you uh, adopt uh, one of those early adopters of an electric car? Do you have a Volt or a Bolt, or maybe you have a Tesla? 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter as well. Uh, and we're talking with Edwin Stafford from USU and Michael Neese with Lafayette College. Here's an email that's come in very timely to the discussion here. This is Sid. He says, uh, on the automated vehicle, I think it's a very cool and interesting idea. However, what about people like myself who enjoy driving? Will it be phasing out uh, our cars and trucks? What about long-haul truckers? I believe that would be a better area in a sense, but agree with the human uh, supervision. So, Edwin Stafford, you were talking about uh, the, the the cool fact, of the, the enjoyment of driving. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you look at car culture, uh, one of the things we understand about automobiles is that they are extensions of our personality. And so uh, the type of car that we drive very often is psychologically rooted in how we want to present ourselves to our friends and to the public. And so um, if you've got a, a self-driving car that basically doesn't go fast or that you're not behind the wheel, you don't feel that you're in control, uh, that may take away from, at least psychologically, as to why people buy cars, why they want to drive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also been a factor in electric vehicles as well. Is uh, you know, Tesla, they made the electric car look gorgeous, sexy, fun, fast. And that's what's captured the imagination on Tesla. The Leaf and the Volt, less so. And so that's why they've had some challenges in terms of getting their product out the door. You know, electric vehicles make up less than 1% um, of the market. And, um, and, and so yet, and yet I think we will be driving electric vehicles or more so in the next decade or so as we overcome some of these um, you know, barriers uh, to the rate of adoption. Uh, and I was just thinking about <laughs> whatever talk about uh, about this, especially with d- distracted driving. I think about the guys, and I always bring this up: the guy I saw on I fifteen who was reading a book. I'd like to get him into a driverless car, but uh, I don't know. You know, I'll have to think about it myself. Uh, so, uh, Michael Neese, I wonder uh, th- this uh, Sid's idea of uh, maybe this would be an early adopter of this, a useful adoption. Of this would be for long haul truckers. You know, that's an interesting point. Uh, as I scan the literature on, on this topic, you know, I get emails to my inbox from, from Google Scholar when, when literature hits, and I see all kinds of implementations of, of automated vehicles being looked into, you know, certainly in uh, trucking and things like that. I saw an interesting article recently that was talking about how uh, John Deere is actually way ahead of the curve uh, with respect to automated vehicles because they've been working on uh, automated tractors uh, in, to, for workers in fields, you know, for farmers for quite some time. 
And it's a, it's a really interesting case for the particular use of automation because they aren't subject to some of the same regulatory uh, practices when they're a tractor that's out in a field instead of a vehicle on the roads. And so to some extent, they've been able to uh, innovate and explore different possibilities more so than, uh, than perhaps people who are designing self-driving cars for road use would have been able to do. Uh, they can also do things like uh, install infrastructure in the field that helps to increase the accuracy of the, the sensors uh, on the tractor, helps basically increase the accuracy with which the tractor knows exactly where it is as, it, as it, it's, it's moving back and forth in the field and mm-hmm. can apparently uh, help make for very, very efficient sort of farming practices, better use of land and more efficient, precise use of land because those automated programs on the tractors know exactly where that vehicle is in, in a particular space at all times. Also, I, I notice, uh, Michael, in, in the comments on the conversation.com to your article, several of the comments are complaining about so-called automated parking systems that aren't, that aren't working for them. This is, <laughs> this is technology. I think the people, you know, for example, one example that people want to take over some of these functions. Right, some of the more mundane things like mm-hmm. finding a parking spot. Uh, and yeah. that, you know, those comments illustrate one of the potential barriers, right, is that if as uh, self-driving cars or uh, more automated versions of cars, various degrees of automation begin to be deployed and people perceive them to be ineffective or to be unreliable, then, you know, that's going to, I think, set back the the advancement from an adoption perspective, right, from a consumer perspective. If people... Uh, start buying these cars and start hearing from their friends or reading on the newspaper about these sorts of vehicles crashing or not being able to do a very good job when it comes to the functions they're intended to do. I think that's going to be a uh, a big hurdle to acceptance. It's going to set up further barriers where you know the the public perception I think could shift dramatically if the initial deployment of these uh, isn't done well. This, this this takes us back to electric vehicles, Edwin Stafford. Um, I, at least from the point of view of Nissan, yeah, every soccer mom was going to have a Leaf. Yes, but. okay, and so it, you know it's kind of interesting uh, going back to Michael's comment about the farming context as being potential innovators for this technology. And I think that's what we do in marketing, is we look at a technology, look at what are some of the limits of actually making it mainstream, and trying to find those innovators who can really appreciate the relative advantage. And so, um, so again, Michael, when you brought up the idea of farmers using this for tractors and John Deere, that makes perfect sense, because they are free of some of those other challenges of you know, driving on the highways and getting laws passed to allow it, et cetera. But on a farm, there's probably less risk. If your tractor goes off key, you know, off kilter, it's not going to hurt anyone per se. Um, and so that's maybe where we can perfect the technology is in that farming context. And that's the same thing with, uh, with electric vehicles. One of the challenges that we had was that General Electric and Nissan put out sedans as their first products um, for electric vehicles, and they didn't sell well. And so back in 2012, there was a lot of criticism that General Motors was actually cutting back production of the Volt. Uh, The Leaf was getting criticized because of its kind of um, uh, unpopular commercial that showed a polar bear coming down from the from the Arctic and roaming the streets of, of cities trying to find a leaf owner. And then when he does, he gets up and, and gives a big bear hug to the owner of the leaf. And 
you know, again, the polar bear represents global warming. Half the people in America don't believe in global warming. So to, so to introduce an electric car based on global warming probably was not the best, you know, um, foot forward. And, and so knowing that the product was a sedan geared for soccer moms and families, um, you know, the, the typical soccer mom and family uh, is basically going to say, well, what's in it for me? I mean, I don't buy a car to solve global warming. I buy a car so I can get my kids to soccer practice, get my kids to ballet, piano, et cetera. And so um, I, I've always talked about that, you know, I think that they did not think through the marketing and the product um, development effectively enough. And that's why electric vehicles have kind of stumbled along the way, at least uh, those particular products. And again, they're, they're picking up. Um, but I think they could have done a much better job if they went after a context like farming. And in my view, I think the best innovators for electric vehicles should have been electric utilities and that they should have developed vans and bucket trucks and things of that nature that electric utilities would want to use their own wholesale prices of electricity rather than diesel fuel. And that I think we would have seen a much quicker uptake of electric vehicles if they targeted a very specialized group that could see the advantage mm-hmm. of an electric vehicle. Note, I, I would think that you would say Tesla is helpful okay, in this, this yeah. case, right? Now, Tesla did went uh, and kind of actually followed diffusion of innovation. And instead of going after soccer moms and families, um, they decided to go after wealthy business people. And so um, they purposely made the car look sexy. It was a sports vehicle. And the, the new sedan is beautiful. looks like a Mercedes or, or a Jaguar. Um, the, f- the first Tesla was basically designed to mimic a Porsche. And so it was marketed on speed. It was not marketed on global warming or green technology. It was that you bought this car because electric vehicles have instant torque and they're fast. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the general public perceives electric vehicles as being a golf cart because that's where most people see electric vehicles as these kind of small little golf carts that we drive around in. But the reality is an electric vehicle doesn't have to look like a golf cart. Mm -hmm. And Tesla changed all that. And that's why they're very popular cars. They're expensive, but um, they have followed the diffusion of innovation by going after those early adopters who would recognize the relative benefits. Mm -hmm. And so that was what was important. And people were willing to pay seventy to a hundred thousand for a car that could go fast, and that it was cool. Yeah, and then and then since that's cool, then maybe it then filters down. Absolutely. To, in yeah. fact, uh, twenty seventeen, they're planning to have uh, the next model uh, Tesla is supposed to be about thirty five thousand dollars. It'll have a two hundred mile range charging range, uh, and that they're expecting that that should make electric vehicles more mainstream. What's really um, the, the big two, two major barriers for electric vehicles right now is, number one, what's the relative advantage? It is cost of operation. Um, it's, you know, electricity is only about a quarter of the price of gasoline. So it is inexpensive, but people don't recognize that. And so if you and I, regular consumers are saying, you know, do I buy a leaf or do I buy a regular economy car? You know, the leaf, that's an expensive, a car, a car is a high involvement, risky investment. And so most people will say, I'm just going to go with the gasoline powered car because gas is plentiful. Yeah, sometimes gas goes up to four bucks a gallon, but at least it's a safe investment. Electricity, I don't know if I'm going to be able to charge it up. I don't know enough about where the charging stations are, et cetera. And that's the other issue then is also the, the range anxiety. And that is 
you know, am I going to get stuck someplace and I can't find a plug outlet to charge up my car, you know? Mm. So those are the issues that we have to overcome, and they are being overcome by yeah. these advances in batteries. It's up to, or soon will be up to 200 miles. Yes. In fact, uh, I've, I've even read that Tesla is actually working on a 400-mile battery pack. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think if, if we can get 200 miles in the next two years, and if we can kind of continue to increase that, what that will do is that that's actually better than a tank of gas. Right. And so people will see that as not only is an electric car a lot cheaper to operate, uh, there's fewer mechanical parts on an electric car, so it'll require fewer tune-ups. I mean, there's basically an economic factor that can be beneficial for an electric vehicle, but that relative advantage is hard for people to fully accept. Um, And then, of course, it's just how compatible is it to my lifestyle? Is it going to take me five, 10 hours to charge your car? And, And right now, for some of the vehicles, it can take, if you're doing a trickle charge from your garage, every hour, you might only get about 25 miles onto the car. So per hour. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's this fear that it could take forever to charge up my car, whereas at a gas station, I could be in and out in five minutes. Right. So... And I'm going to need at least 250 miles on a charge to get out and see my mother in Bernal. So that's, uh, that's only 50 miles more than, you know. Well, now, but you know what, though? The thing is, Tom, that they have 48 supercharging stations throughout Utah already. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they are out in, uh, you know, Richfield and Blanding. There are Tesla charging stations out there. So if you okay. did have a Tesla, so I'll you'd be, okay. be able to charge quick. So somebody donated <laughs> Tesla to me, and I'll, I'll be an early adopter in that way. Uh, let's uh, take another break. When we come back, we have several emails on driverless cars, and we'll get to those. We're talking with Edwin Stafford from USU and Michael Neese from Lafayette College. We're talking about the future of cars and driving. It's interesting to look into our uh, driving and car future and uh, see what the uh, potential problems and advantages are. We're talking about driverless cars and electric cars. You're welcome to join the conversation here at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com, and we will get to those emails following this break. Support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible in part by our members and the Uinta County Library's Regional History Center, supporting people of all ages in their quests to learn, grow, and discover. And USU's Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, offering 19 bachelor's degrees and 34 graduate programs, More at cehs.usu.edu. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week, it's a conversation with the irrepressible David Sedaris, the king of making the most of embarrassing situations, like the family dinner, which his dad eats in his underpants. Be sure to join us. That's this week on The Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the future of driving and cars. We're talking about driverless vehicles, and we're talking about electric vehicles. Uh, just before we go to uh, emails that have come in, thanks for those. You can email us, upraxcess at gmail.com. That's upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. I'll say that clear, upraxcess at gmail.com. And you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. I've been reading an interview on LinkedIn with uh, Mary Barra, who is CEO of GM, and uh, the 
the interviewer was pointing out that uh, there are three companies disrupting the auto industry from different angles. Tesla undermining gas engines and dealerships, Uber challenging the need to own a car, and Mobileye, which is making camera and computer driving systems uh, that questions the need to even have drivers. And so that kind of gets us into what we're talking about today. Uh, so this is a captured uh, imagination of several listeners. Uh, Carla writes in, would this new driverless automated car technology enable elderly drivers to stay on the road longer? I can see this is a big plus for older people who no longer want to n- negotiate the roads, but who are alert enough to be a co-pilot and take control when necessary. If driving is automated, people can stay in their homes and be independent much longer able to get to the doctor appointments, do their shopping, visit friends, go to church, etc. This would be a great blessing for this population, if so. So, Michael Neese, that uh, would be a potential um, advantage for driverless cars? Absolutely. Um, if we could get to the point where driving was uh, highly or fully automated, it, it might empower uh, certainly uh, older adults, uh, people with disabilities, uh, and that uh, that mobility would be, you know, that would be a great plus. That would be a great positive. Um, it's kind of interesting to uh, think about for whom, like what demographic would a self-driving car be most appropriate because it, it poses some interesting questions. If you look at the, the distribution, uh, the statistics on accidents and fatalities plotted across the, the lifespan, across different age ranges, what you see is kind of a, a U-shaped curve whereby very young drivers tend to have lots of accidents and uh, then there's kind of a, a level period in the middle of that curve that is middle-aged adults uh, and then very uh, much older drivers tend to have higher rates of accidents and injuries and things like that when driving. And so uh, some researchers have been pointing out that it's not a foregone conclusion that automated vehicles would be safer than a middle-aged adult. Uh, Presumably their safety uh, sort of ratio would be flat. It wouldn't be affected by a demographic variable like age, right? And so we we might have some portion of drivers that, uh, for whom automated driving is a better option uh, and and relatively safer, and another portion, uh, probably middle-aged adults, uh, for whom uh, the automated vehicle is actually uh, a little bit less safe than how they would drive under normal circumstances. Mm. I think that raises some really interesting questions for the front end of that curve, the younger drivers, right? Um, because one of the consequences of automation is potential loss of skill. Uh, to the extent that you are driving the car, you're not gaining skill at driving the car, right? And so what do we do for younger drivers uh, in that case, uh, do we put them in an automated vehicle and they never get the experience to gain skill at manually driving a vehicle, uh, if that's a potential thing that they would still need to do at some point as a driver? Uh, but certainly, yeah, the, as, the, as the emailer pointed out, uh, for older adults, people with disabilities, this would be a really, really great positive uh, quality of life factor if they could uh, have mobility from self-driving vehicles and get to things like doctor's appointments and things like that. I'm, I'm thinking that uh, perhaps with a, a driverless vehicle, an automated vehicle, as a driver, I'd perhaps want the option, you know, engage the automation or not. Yeah, I, I think that that will be probably, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say that would probably how be how a lot of this will unfold. Um, it, it will be a gradual sort of deployment. Um, and, and again, that raises a lot of complications with acceptance, uh, because if, if you have the option to turn things off, and they don't work well, and you feel like as a driver that you could do a better job 
than uh, your collision avoidance system or your adaptive cruise control or uh, you know any other automated option on your vehicle, then you're probably just going to turn that option off and continue to do it yourself. Uh, so you know it, it's it's going to be uh, interesting times as transportation unfolds in the next few decades to see the role that automation plays and and if we get some sort of wholesale fully automated vehicle all at once or if we continue to see gradual automated add-ons and the extent to which people will actually use those or opt to turn them off or or you know want to keep control of the vehicle because because of car culture and things like that. Here is uh, Gary in Logan he emails this. Uh, he says, one thing that concerns me about automated vehicles is their performance in a collision. What would the car consider more important, safety of the passenger or the safety of the uh, mo- people most uh, possibly uh, most involved? That gets us into that dilemma that we were talking about earlier. It does, you know, um, and I don't have an answer to this. I'm not sure, uh, for example, what uh, Google's engineers, um, what they're thinking on this uh, if, if they have been in the position yet where they've had to make explicit sort of algorithmic decisions about who gets preserved in the event of an accident. Uh, you could be in a somewhat uh, ironic position of uh, perhaps being a driver or passenger in a self-driving vehicle, uh, and, you know, that, that car could be put in a position where it has to decide, uh, for example, that it's going to take a maneuver that increases the likelihood that you're harmed, uh, perhaps to preserve the greater good uh, in that the vehicle you're about to hit, say, has six people in it instead of just you. Uh, I have no idea how those things will play out, but it, it certainly will be interesting and will be a topic of discussion mm-hmm. as this technology uh, begins to be un- un- unrolled. And uh, Gary continues, as for Teslas, I saw one yesterday and was very impressed. I'm really excited for their lower-priced model that will be released, as well as their innovative minivan model. For your guest, Edwin Stafford, I'm wondering if he has any idea about the cost of electricity versus cost of gas. For instance, how much would owning a Tesla impact your electricity bill? Okay, that's a very good point. And yes, your electricity bill would go up because you would probably have to charge at home overnight. Um, what they have found is is that uh, electricity is only about a quarter of the cost of gasoline. So if you're now spending, you know, fifteen or you know a couple thousand dollars a year or more probably on gasoline, uh, your electricity rates would probably go up um, in in uh, you know about a twenty five percent of that. Now some of your charging may be outside. Um, and so uh, a couple of things are unfolding right now. If you get a Tesla, they have the free charging stations, which are superchargers. You can get 80% of your charge within 30 minutes. And uh, so that is, you know, potentially 150, 160 miles um, capability within 30 minutes. And Tesla has been putting an infrastructure across the country so that way people can drive across the country basically for free. Uh, using that, and I shouldn't say free because you're paying for it as part of the price of your Tesla, but that is the privilege of having access to those uh, charging stations. Um, but one of the things I've been reading is that we may actually charge for free, uh, and that is uh, just regular charging station because electricity is relatively inexpensive. That there may be free business models where if you charge your car at a particular charging station and watch some ads or do some kind of interaction with the charger, 
Um, that way they can capture some information from you so that they may sell you or try to sell you something kind of similar to a Google search that we can search for free and we get bombarded with certain ads and those types of things. Uh, charging our car may be a similar type of experience. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been reading that some entrepreneurs are looking at giving the electricity charge away for free if we, you know, put up with some advertising. Interesting. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, taking that, I hadn't thought about transferring that model to, yeah, to charge you, it. going to the so-called gas station. That's interesting. Um, and then we, we, we don't have time here to go into the whole complicated uh, green factor of electric vehicles. So you, sometimes you think of course you don't have the emissions yeah but then you're possibly you know transferring absolutely the battery issue what's nice about car batteries is that that is one part of the automobile that has a very good recycling infrastructure so if if you're concerned about the batteries there is a cost of putting the batteries and building the batteries etc and you have big battery packs um, but there is good recycling here's the benefit of an electric car and that is that increasingly we'll be using renewable energy to charge our cars. And mm-hmm. so already in California, they have carports that are basically solar panels. You can park underneath the solar panel and it'll charge your electric vehicle. And even though it doesn't have the full power of overnight, you can charge you know at least 50 to 100 miles maybe all day if you're sitting um, underneath one of those and you're parked underneath one. And that, they're saying, is basically going to be our future, that increasingly our transportation system will be powered by the sun or wind. Hmm. Let's go to another email. This is from Steve. He says, one thing concerns me, something that goes hand in hand with the technologies bringing us to uh, driverless vehicles is the further intrusion into our lives as black boxes are installed in modern cars, enabling the government, corporations, and who knows who else to gather the most minute data on where we go and how we drive. The last time I bought a car was in 2008, and I have real concerns about even today's new vehicles, which already incorporate such technology. And as we well know, neither the U.S. government, which spies on our phone calls and Internet use, nor local police agencies, which gather wholesale information about our comings and goings through the use of license plate readers, nor large corporations, which collect and sell all kinds of personal big data, cares a whit about protecting our privacy. It's a brave new world. I am not eager to enter. wonder, um, uh, turning to Michael Neese, what, what do you think about that? Well, you know, the security issue with uh, self-driving cars, uh, particularly one, one issue that we haven't hit on is that these cars will likely be uh, networked somehow and talking with each other and possibly with infrastructure. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think we're, we would yet to see how that's going to play out. Uh, and that will be, uh, I'm sure, subject to, to lots of debate uh, with respect to the legal aspects of things and the regulatory aspects of how that works. But certainly the the writer's concerns are legitimate and and on the radar people who uh, who do research in this area uh, with respect to you know privacy, but also with respect to the security of the overall system. Uh, if we have uh, a bunch of self-driving cars that are networked and dependent upon uh, the internet, uh, are those same vehicles going to be susceptible to hacking and other you know possible safety compromises that could go along with that? Well, I hadn't even thought about that. That's <laughs> your vehicle, if it's you know, if it's automated and such, and relying on remote communication could get hacked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Edwin Stafford, just to have about a minute to left here. I wonder your your response to Steve's point. Uh, yeah, I I agree that that is um, the challenge. I mean, I think for us to enjoy the free things that we get off the internet, we are giving away our privacy, and so. 
um, that becomes uh, an increasing challenge. Um, and I think what's interesting, what we're seeing is that the younger demographic, millennials, are more willing to engage in that type of uh, issue. Older people are much more guarded and concerned about their privacy. Um, a lot of young people, they put a lot of personal information on Instagram, Facebook, and maybe they haven't fully thought through what the future may be of having so much of their lives openly accessible on the web. And um, But you're right, this is just one more um, vehicle for government corporations to kind of better know us. And I hate to say that's what we do in marketing. The more we know our customers, the better we can try to provide products for you. I'm not saying that I advocate that, but that's their motivation for trying to know as much about you as possible. We're out of time. We will leave it there. The comments can continue at upraxis at gmail.com. I hope you will comment if you would like to. Thanks for listeners who responded today. And our thanks to our guest, Michael Neese, is Assistant Professor of Psychology at Lafayette College. You can read his very interesting article at theconversation.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And Edwin Stafford is uh, Professor of Marketing at USU Huntsman School of Business. Thank you. Thank you. Um, tomorrow, we are going to respond to issues of race in America, especially the shootings in Charleston. We'll have with us the Reverend France Davis, longtime pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, he is a, uh, a civil rights pioneer, lives in Salt Lake City. We'll get his response to this and yours perhaps as well tomorrow. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Headspin Events, presenting the fourth annual Cash Grand Fondo Bike Ride and Outdoor Expo to benefit Logan Regional Hospital, including cycling, food, and entertainment Friday, July 10th and Saturday, July 11th. Information available at cashgrandfondo.com. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.